You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 98 of the Common Descent Podcast. Boy, we're running out of double digits. It's so close. Today's episode topic is species and speciation. Which, a a foundational topic that will have far fewer solid answers than many of our listeners may be expecting. Yeah, this is, uh, for as simple a term as it seems like it should be, where it's like, yeah, we know what a species is, species. We talk about new species all the time and ancient species all the time. It's actually a much more complex and and far-reaching topic. Oh, yeah. Than you might think. Uh, several, yeah, yeah. lots of biologists and paleontologists saw the title of this episode and went, oh boy. <laughs> yes, exactly. They know. Yep. <laughs> it's going to be a great discussion. Yeah, so this episode we're going to discuss what is a species. It's going to be kind of a two-part. What is a species and how do we get new species? Or right. how do we think we get new species and what do we think a species is? Right. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to discuss the definitions of species and what those mean, how we use the concept of species, and what are the limitations to how we can study this term, especially in the fossil record. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go through how can a group of organisms split or give rise to new groups of organisms, new species. Speciate. Speciation. How does that happen? What are the mechanisms? What are the causes, the driving forces? And once again, how can we interpret those things in the fossil record? Right. So that's the plan for this episode. Just that extraordinarily simple subject. Just (laughs) one real quick episode. Yeah, just the basic question of, you know, how do we get new life? So. (laughs) (laughs) um, Whose idea was this anyway? This was requested by a few of our listeners and patrons. Our listeners Jonathan and Sean and our patrons Andrew and Gregory requested either this topic or specific aspects of it. So mm-hmm. thanks for the requests. Good idea. We're looking forward to it. Learned a lot while taking notes. But before we tackle this topic, let's get some announcements out of the way. Our first announcement, as usual these days, which is awesome, is that we have a Patreon. And when you sign up for our Patreon at certain levels, we like to shout your name out. So the names we'd like to shout out today are Rob, Ben, Maddie, and Adriana. You know, it occurs to me, we don't really shout them. Rob, Ben, (laughs) Maddie, and Adriana. Thanks for joining us, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, it's more of a technicality. It's called a shout out. (laughs) Patrons get all sorts of goodies, uh, background stuff, extra audio things, uh, uh, shout outs like this, the ability to ask us patron questions. Yeah. So if you aren't already a patron, consider it. Uh, the funds we raise on Patreon help us uh, run the podcast and do all sorts of cool other stuff. Yeah, and are greatly, greatly appreciated because they've let us do way more than we thought we'd be doing by this point. Oh, yeah. You heard how Will yelled with gratitude just then. <laughs> Speaking of awesome things that we get to do. One neat thing that we've done recently, we were guests on the Palette University YouTube channel. Yeah, so this is a channel run by Gavin, who's a paleontologist uh, who talks about Pokemon and science. And if you've been listening to this podcast uh, for a little bit, 
you know that that's right up our alley. Right up our alley. We did a whole episode about Pokemon paleontology about a year ago, one of our extra episodes. And we were invited to, to go on and we spent an hour having just some of the most delightfully dorky conversations that we've, it's been our privilege to be invited to do. It was, it was like legitimately very fun because we just spiraled off in, in nerd talk and speculation and I love yeah. that. Science and Pokemon. So we'll put the link to that in the episode description. And also there is a page on our blog that has a list of all these side projects and th- places where we've been guests and things like that. So we'll put it on there as well. Yeah, go check out the people we've gotten to collaborate with because they're doing cool stuff. They are. And hey, speaking of side projects, it's October. Which means we are in the midst of spooky. Two episodes down, two to go. Yes, this third speculative evolution is about sea monsters. So check in the next two Saturdays and... Find out what our last two sea monsters that we're going to speculatively evolve are. Yes, keep an eye out for those every weekend uh, until Halloween. And then other than that, we are getting close to the end of the year. So keep your eyes and ears out because we do have some end of the year things coming up. True. That we're putting the finishing touches on. Including the 100th episode. Including the 100th episode. There will be a couple of uh, fun things coming up for that. Yes. So more to come. But that's it for announcements, which means we can move on to the news, our first section. Every episode, we like to collect some of the recent news articles, studies, researches about evolution, paleontology, biology, life sciences, to keep us up to date, to keep you all up to date. And today, we would like to start it off with... Oh, that's me. That's my cue. <laughs> so I'm actually, funnily enough, I'm going to be starting this off with uh, a topic that we don't t- cover uh, all that particularly often uh, in our news, which is a pure archaeology bit of news. But wait, but we're not. No, archaeologists and paleontologists are different. Uh, uh, brains turned into glass. All right. Uh, I'm back on board. This is research <laughs> by Pier Paolo Petrone et al. in the journal Plus One. And we'll link to an article in Live Science by Stephanie Pappas. So, fans of history, archaeology, or volcanoes will be particularly familiar with the 79 AD eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Yes. uh, Which is in Italy, which released pyroclastic flows, which is the rolling avalanches of ash and dust and And rock. And death. That flow down the side of the mountain. When Vesuvius erupted in 79, its pyroclastic flows famously buried... Pompeii, and also the nearby uh, city of Herculaneum. Oh, I always forget about Herculaneum. Me too. In this study, researchers specifically looked at structures preserved in the skull of a human male, 20-something-year-old male, who was preserved, and uh, as a reminder, tons of people in these towns were preserved by the ash clouds, just frozen in place and cooked into what remains. Yeah, like frozen in their moment of death. This person was preserved face down in a bed in the College of Augustales, which apparently was, the, according to the Life Science article, the headquarters of the cult of Emperor Augustus, uh, which were people who worshipped the emperor as a deity. Huh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, apparently that was a thing. Like, common. Uh, I don't... Uh, we're not archaeologists. That's cool. <laughs> but... I put that in there because it's a fun little note, completely unrelated to the rest of this discussion, because the important part for our discussion is that inside the skull of this person, they found this glassy black material 
that they have found numerous reasons to identify as glassified brain tissue. Wow. So they did a couple of different analyses. One, scanning electron microscope to get a real up-close look at the structures in this glassy material in the skull. They found tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic spheres and tubes that appear to match the structure of neurons and axions, which is basically the body and then the tail, if you will, of a nerve cell, as well as some specific details like cell membrane structure and internal structure, like vesicles and fibers inside the cells. These are structures that are, you know, the the cell structures they're identifying are around 500 to 800 nanometers in diameter. So extremely fine preservation. They also did chemical and molecular analysis and identified lots of organic tissue stuff, like lots of carbon and oxygen, as well as protein structures consistent with brain tissue. So all this together, they seem to have identified preserved parts of the spinal cord and the cerebellum, which is the bottom part of the brain nearest to the spinal cord. Wow! These tissues, and that one of the big reasons why I decided to choose this news is because I learned a new word. <laughs> <laughs> These tissues underwent a, were preserved via a process called vitrification, which means they were turned to glass. Jeez. So as a reminder, glass is, I have this here, a non-crystalline amorphous solid. <laughs> so if you remember from learning about rocks and minerals, most minerals have a very defined structure. Yeah, that's what causes them to take the shape, the crystal shape that we all know. Right, their atoms are arranged in a specific way. One of the things that characterizes glass is that it doesn't have that kind of structure. Mm -hmm. So obsidian is an example of a glass that forms through the rapid heating and cooling of mineral components coming out of volcanoes. Well, the same thing can happen to organic tissues when they are rapidly heated and cooled. (laughs) Such as like what would happen... If your body and your brain are immersed in superheated ash and then returned to ancient Italian room temperature. (laughs) This is such a hardcore finding. How cool is that? Like just everything about it is the terminology (laughs) vitrification is great term. It's a good word. V's are good. V's are a good letter. V's are awesome. And also, if there's any listeners out there who are also Warhammer fans, I was in, this feels like such a crazy Warhammer situation of this glassified part of a spinal cord and brain of an ancient worshiper of the god emperor of mankind. Like, yeah, this is, this is (laughs) in a, in a reliquary somewhere deep in the archives. (laughs) We don't talk about archaeological research uh, all that much, but it's not because it's not cool. <laughs> it's that's so awesome. Now, they do make the point in the paper uh, that this is a rare and exceptional look at ancient brain tissue. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Not only is it a cool process and, and a cool way to understand this process, but yeah, we don't get to look at ancient people's brains very often. Yeah, they don't usually preserve. They're very soft and squishy. And then I pulled aside this sentence from somewhere in the paper. I, this was either in the abstract or near the conclusion, because those are the parts that I tend to read. Uh, they mentioned that these results have, quote, important implications in the field of bioanthropological and volcanological research. 
Oh. Which I think is a delightful point to be made <laughs> that this is a cool study for people who study ancient humans and for people who study volcanoes. Yep. <laughs> Wait, our volcanoes are doing what to people? How cool is that? Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. I like it because it's an unexpected discovery. I was surprised. Yeah, like, we weren't looking, they weren't looking for glassified brains. Actually, I think they were. Were they? Yeah, because uh, if, if I understood correctly reading through the, the article, this has been looked into before. What? Like this, I think, everyone read more if you want, for sure. But I think these structures have been discussed and shown before. And they were basically saying, hey, let's look really closely and kind of get to the bottom of this. That's the impression I got, that this wasn't the first time Wow, someone had kind of pointed at these and go, hey, what is this? We yeah. Let's figure out what this is. I mean, that that that's reasonable and makes sense, but also, jeez. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, this amazing discovery in full stop. Yep. There you go. <laughs> so beat that. What kind of news did you bring? To the best news. I brought croc news. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tried and true, and it always is awesome. <laughs> are they glass crocs? <laughs> they, well, there no. aren't even glass. There are glass lizards. There are glass lizards. No glass crocs. Uh, Plus one squamates. <laughs> <laughs> this news is not about a glassified crocodile, but it is about a small Cretaceous terrestrial crocodiliform found among titanosaur nests oh the, the among the biggest of the sauropod yeah the dinosaurs. giant long necks uh famous down in south america so this is a croc who's cool by association <laughs> this, this is a croc who is cool on its own <laughs> these these titanosaurs were don't cool. need no sauropods <laughs> this is research by albert salace et al in scientific reports and the article is by enrico de laza in Sci News. Cool. And as a reminder for everybody, the articles we will link in the blog post. Yes, indeed. This small crocodile form is Ogresuchus ferratus. Ogresuchus. Good name. Speak, <laughs> speaking of sci-fi fantasy stuff. <laughs> I, know that, I know what monster I want us to fight next in B&D. <laughs> this is a late Cretaceous crocodile form 71 million years ago and is a new genus and species. Cool. Which is always fun. It is fairly small, so like three and a half feet long, 1.1 meters, and probably only had a mass of about nine kilograms, which is roughly about 20 pounds, which makes it particularly interesting because this is from a group called the Sebasukians, which we've mentioned before. These were the ones that did very, very well in South America after the die out of the dinosaurs became one of the major terrestrial predators, terrestrial crocodiliforms. Yep. Go all the way back to episode two yep. for croc history. But they first showed up in Cretaceous and then lasted until the Miocene. So long running group. This is one of the smallest and not just like in length, but also weight of any Sebasukian. Oh. So this is a very, very small member of this group and represents the earliest record for this group now 10 million years older than the previous known fossils so a, a prestigious find yeah so this is a very small early terrestrial crocodiliform of a group that then lasted till the miocene which is pretty cool yeah the beginning of a long legacy and may indicate that this group actually showed up before gondwana fully broke off the southern continents fully separated so they may have shown up before they were just south uh, trapped in the south 
Which could mean that there are more to find in the North. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm ready for. <laughs> like other Sebasukians, it is notable compared to other crocs for having its legs under the body. You know, it wasn't just living on land. It was adapted to walking around and even potentially running and galloping on land. Right. Uh, legs under the body, more like mammals and dinosaurs, as opposed to sprawling like exactly. we see in modern crocs and lizards. More cursorial, adapted for running lifestyles. It does indeed appear to be predatory. It's got the classic, you know, toothy croc mouth, but a shorter, taller skull for living on land than the flat, long ones for living in water. And it was found among titanosaur nesting remains. So a site with numerous eggshells in Catalonia, Spain, is where this specimen came from, which could mean that it was there to feed. You know, we don't know why it was, why it died here. But the researchers said, though they don't expect that small dinosaurs would be like the bulk of this little croc's meals, it absolutely could have been taking on food that size. Right, right. That these baby dinosaurs hatch and then this croc's waiting for them. Yeah, so it could have been a nest raider and yeah. looking to take on the newborn young or the eggs. Right, or not even waiting. Yeah. Or it was a nest parasite and it was going to lay its eggs in the titanosaur nests. Which, when I first saw the title, <laughs> is what I was wondering. Did we get another example of crocodilomorph eggs among dinosaur eggs? Yeah. Was this another example of potential nest parasitism, which would be cool. That would be cool. Doesn't sound like that. Sounds like it was uh, an adult around babies. Okay. Well, yeah, it was there to lay its eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Old crocs, cool. New species, cool. But also, it's always fun to get a fossil that shows you an association mm -hmm. between ancient species. Yes. You know, it's 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 very easy for us to find three different species in the same fossil site and then draw them living together. But it's always fun when you get a little bit of extra evidence of, no, we, we actually do know that at least one time, at least one croc wandered through at least one titanosaur nesting mm -hmm, site mm -hmm. yeah it's a little more specific yeah which is which is it, it's fun and it, it's helpful when we're trying to wrap our heads around how these ancient organisms lived in relation to each other you know they weren't just all fixture it's not like a museum where they're all completely separate and they never interact mm -hmm. they all have little bars around them no, they were living together and so it's fun to find these ways to picture how like the discussion we just had was it eating the eggs? Was mm -hmm. it eating the babies? Was it laying its eggs there for some reason? Uh, did it wander in there to hide from predators because predator, a larger predator would be seen as a threat from the, by the titanosaurs, but Ogresuchus was small enough that they wouldn't care about it. So it ran in there for protection. Who knows? But there's all sorts of fun possibilities. Yeah. It's, 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 these findings are always nice because no, this does not give us a definitive answer about the behavior of, of Ogresuchus. But it gives us a few more ideas and, like, opens a couple of doors. Because animals are complex. You know, just look up those random weird videos where it's like, look, a deer and a rabbit became friends. <laughs> All right, well, that's not, like, standard. Yeah. <laughs> but stuff like that happens. And so finding these are always nice where it's like, All right, cool. Here's a new category of thoughts for us to entertain now. And I like it. Well, speaking of evidence that doesn't give us solid understandings of the behavior of ancient organisms, but gives us lots of interesting new questions and hints at how they may have been behaving, uh, my next bit of news is about footprints. 
Woo! Specifically, and I, I am being very monotonous in my topics these this episode, human footprints. Woo! I, they're not too bad. <laughs> episode 18. <laughs> this is research by Matthew Bennett et al. in Quaternary Science Review, and we will link to an article in The Conversation, which, as we've discussed before, is a website where authors will write popular articles about their own research. So th- this conversation article is by Matthew Bennett and Sally Reynolds, both authors on the new paper. The footprints in question are an exceptional trackway of human footprints from White Sands National Park in New Mexico, here in the United States, which is a site famous for its footprints. Hundreds of thousands of footprints left along this dried-up lake bed, a a feature called a playa, in the late Pleistocene around 13,000 to 11,500 years ago. The trackway in question is notable for a bunch of reasons. The first is that it is very long and very straight. This trackway is one and a half kilometers long. Wow! For our fellow Americans, about a mile long. And it's straight. It's not like a wandering path. This is a the, the tracks of a person who walked in a straight line. Who had somewhere to be. Who had somewhere to be. And, and indeed, uh, they were also walking quickly. Huh. Uh, the researchers estimated that this person was walking at about 1.7 meters per second compared to the comfortable human walking speed <laughs> of 1.2 to 1.5 meters per second. Although it, uh, how you interpret what was comfortable for people at different, it, maybe they were super fit. I was about to say like, what's maybe comfortable for you, what's comfortable for me is sitting right here. Right. And well, and I grew up in New York. So comfortable for me is like, you know, <laughs> two or three meters the, per second. The southern comfortable versus the northern comfortable. <laughs> But the other thing that's really cool about this, so long, straight, uh, uh, hastily walked possibly path. Also, it, it is the trackway is a there and back path. Oh. The footprints go one way, and then, they, and then uh, presumably at least several hours later, the authors infer, walked back along the same path, following their, their steps back to where they came from. Huh. They were also able to get a, a sense of who this person was. Uh, They mentioned that the feet uh, appear to be fairly small, so likely, they say, uh, female or maybe adolescent male, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. although I guess I I don't know how you tell from footprints the difference between a female versus a small male. Yeah. Versus a young man. So it's a person with small feet. Yeah, it's, it's not a hefty big person. Right. And at several places along the trackway, there are, uh, these footprints are accompanied by small child tracks. Oh. But only every now and then, and they point out that the way the adult's footprints are is consistent with the way someone walks when they're carrying something. That the footprints are a little broader, they're a little less, uh, they're a little more variable. Like the steps aren't quite as consistent because you have this weight. So this looks like this was a person who walked a mile across this lake bed carrying a child and every now and then like put them down and then pick them back up yeah it's like watching a family going through disney world (laughs) (laughs) all right it's time for you to walk for a little bit so what looks like uh they carried this child at least one way they point out that the evidence uh, might indicate that they didn't have the child on the way back i see when you first said the children's footprints only i thought you're gonna be like we're only going one way and it's like there was a bunch. I immediately got a picture of just like leading these children <laughs> off. 
a mile away. Uh, now, at this point, uh, it is very important to point out that it is very easy to draw conclusions beyond what evidence indicates with footprints. Yes. And I've seen people commenting on this particular article of cautioning, like, hey, let's not make a, a too many assumptions about this. And even in the conversation article, there's a point at the end where they make the point uh, uh, that this was a person walking quickly and in a straight line, which seems to suggest that they had a direction in mind and that they were anticipating a friendly reception, which I, hmm, huh. I'm not, I don't know that I would buy that a hundred percent. You may just be leaving an unfriendly reception. <laughs> right. It could be. Um, and then if, you know, then there's the fact that, uh, uh the there is the evidence seems to suggest the child was only with them one way. Yeah, and there's all sorts of conclusions you can draw about that. Hopefully, it was something good. <laughs> but the other cool thing that comes out of this is that there are other animal tracks. Speaking of uh, trying to draw inferences from uh, pure footprints, mm-hmm. the authors identified that a p- seemingly in between the to and from trips, the trackway was intersected by a giant ground sloth huh. and a Colombian mammoth. Huh. That this person walked across the bed, and then before they came back, these two other big animals walked across that same area. And the authors point out that the sloth tracks seem to change when they come across the human tracks. Oh. That it looks like the sloth may have stopped or reared up or wa- or, or like paced around a little bit possibly reacting to the presence. Yeah, the smells uh, or the the evidence. Right, right, right. Uh, but the mammoth does not pay any mind. <laughs> <laughs> the, those, that track does not deviate as it crosses yeah, the human track. Mammoth don't care. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, just all of that. We've done track newses before, and it's been no secret that I think they're fascinating. Very cool. Uh, but I do like that the point was made very clearly of, like, Especially tracks like these, where you have so much going on. It's a long trackway. There are multiple individuals of the species that left it. You know, there's multiple humans involved, which is whenever you have tracks together, that's one of the strongest things we have for social behavior in animals in the fossil record. But then you also have these other animals interacting. It that's super awesome. But it does it fires the imagination in a great way, but it also can fire it too much. Yeah, like it's easy to jump to conclusions because because it's so intriguing and there's so much to mess with that it it begs for a story to right. be told. And indeed, one of the things that I've seen commented upon, uh, it's perhaps slightly criticized, is that the way this story is very commonly being told is that this was a mother carrying yep. a child across uh, this landscape. Absolutely. Which is totally possible. That is consistent with the known behavior of Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. But no, we don't actually know that that's the case. It could be an older sister and a you know younger sibling. It could, it be, could a be a young man and a small child. Yeah. It could be two unrelated kids, yeah. like one older, one younger. Like we have no clue. Yeah. It could be a, an adult who stole a child. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they were walking with haste. They stole a baby. The human in us wants to apply a story. You yeah. know, the storytellers that live in all of us wants to apply a, a tale to this. 
but we can't actually. We can have fun thinking about it. We can have fun discussing what the potential tales could be. Just like that croc. Yes. But we can't actually, like, this is where sometimes paleo art can get into dangerous territory. Is if one really good piece of paleo art gets made for this, that can become the truth for a lot of people. The paleo art associated with this is a woman carrying a child across. Yeah, so it, it, it does, it's always important to take, keep that in mind that there's only so much you can tell from what is nonetheless an amazing discovery. And I do appreciate that they made the point that even outside of how we interpret this specific instance, having a very long trackway will help us to better understand short trackways. Yes. Because now we have this great sample and we can look for trends and patterns that we might not otherwise notice in a shorter trackway. Now we can say, oh, hey, look, we see the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, That What we may be seeing over here might be part of the same thing as this long trackway. So it'll serve as a nice reference Mm -hmm. for future ichnological studies of this sort. Well, it's, it's nice because it's more consistent. You know, if you have a trackway that's six footprints, uh, for all you know, you happen to get the part of the trip where they stumbled. Right, exactly. Or were sprinting or skipping. Like, who knows what they were doing during those five steps. Here we have a mile. You know, that that's consistent travel. <laughs> and that's amazing. It's a cool, it's a cool find. Wow, I love it. I love it. That one's really cool. Well, my last bit of news is going to be about a dinosaur. Okay. Take, bring it back to, back to convention. Yeah, a little classic. Like we've said before, our quota. Yes. No, it's, uh, I could see the people with the clipboards starting to get nervous. (laughs) This is about a fairly small dinosaur, uh, from the late Jurassic, about 150 million years ago, which seems to have... Very interesting sensory apparatus, at least on the tail. Okay. This is research by Phil Bell and Christoph Hendricks in Current Biology, and the article is by John Pickerel in Nat Geo. So this is Juravenator Starkeye, which is from Germany, from a decently complete skeleton that has some preserved soft tissue Ooh. in the sediment around it. Particularly skin around the tail was preserved, or impressions, you know, remains of that skin. And when they were analyzing the fossil, they noticed a unique patterning in the scales of the tail. You know, something that stood out. And what they saw looked like a series, you know, so like lines of little circles, concentric circles. Hmm. And at first they kind of thought that this could be an effect of fossilization, that this is an artifact left behind by the preservation process, uh, but it's very regular. It's too regular to be due to a random process. It seems organic. It seems part of the anatomy that this was a feature on the tail. It had these little circular structures on the scales going in at least a line down the tail. Interesting. The, The regularity, as well as the fact that it they only found them on the scales on the underside of the tail. So this wasn't just across the tail. It was localized. So they examined them more closely using some microscopes in UV light to get a better look. And what they found is these little structures, these little circular structures with kind of a little bump pit in the middle. And 
what they very quickly realize is that they closely resembled integumentary sense organs, or ISOs, which are the things we find on croc skin. Surprise, it was a croc yeah. article the whole time. You're always with the crocs <laughs> with you. These are the little pits that you see on the face and body of crocs. Those little black dots that are all around the mouth of a croc are the ISOs. They're sense organs, little pressure, temperature sense organs that allow the croc to feel movement in the water. It's how they check the temperature of their nests when they're keeping their eggs. And these seem to be very reminiscent of those structures. And they were along the tail of this small dinosaur. So that's led them to question if these are indeed sensory organs, what was the animal doing with them? And there are a couple of things that gave them clues. Uh, first off, this dinosaur, Gervinator, has fairly large eyes, which could potentially suggest nocturnal habit. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's being active at night, at least more often than day. And it was found in an area where there would have been, as they put it, plentiful shallow lagoons throughout Jurassic Europe, as well as coastal waters. So they propose that this sensory, these sensory organs, the sensory apparatus down the tail at least, could have helped them forage for fish at night in the shallow waters. Oh, interesting. So it may have been something that helped them hunt for aquatic prey when eyesight was less useful. Hmm. And this isn't the only research that has suggested these kind of structures in dinosaurs. Uh, I think we did it in news, but there was the research that suggested T-Rex may have had similar sensory organs in the face. Right, right. And I think there's been, I think we talked about that in the Spinosaurus episode, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. episode 42, that there has been the suggestion that they may have had structures on the tip of the snout like Mm -hmm. Crocs do. But they do point out that with the T-Rex article at least, It was working from the inside out in that structures on the skull seemed to suggest that there were nerves and blood vessels leading to things that could be sensory organs. Right. Here, it's the opposite where they have what seems to be the pits on the skin that would have been doing the sensing. Very cool find. Yeah, I like it a lot. That talk about filling in a story. Right. Right. The, the, the image of how this animal is interacting with its environment. The fact that you also mentioned that, that, that those pits are what crocs will use to keep an eye on the temperature of their nest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. makes me, that, that immediately made me picture this dinosaur doing the same sort of thing. Because we know that there are at least some non-bird dinosaurs that appear to have sat over their nests. Yeah, brooded. Uh, and even if we didn't have evidence for that, it, it would be very surprising to imagine that no dinosaurs were protective of their nest at least a little bit. I mean, all the archosaurs we're familiar with today <laughs> right, do they it. Sure tend to do it. So the idea that this animal could like curl its tail around its nest or something mm-hmm. and, and keep an eye on the temperature or something like that. There I could imagine there'd be a lot of uses for sensory pits in your tail. Well, and they talked about in the, the T-Rex article, one of the ideas was also nest maintenance, but also that the courtship. Uh, that oh, right. the T-Rexes might, may have been nuzzling each other and the sensory organs were part of uh, either courtship or at least interaction. You Adorable. Know? And so uh, two little dinosaurs, you know. Yeah, with their tails, with their wrapped, tails wrapped around yeah, each other. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's romantic and I love it. Oh, it's very cute. Also, the picture of a T-Rex, like, rubbing its face on stuff like a cat does. <laughs> <laughs> Knocking over trees. Just, just... 
just deep chest rumbles <laughs> as it. <laughs> That's what we've been coming to. This yeah. Stuff, the, the slowly building the picture of T-Rex as just a really big cat. Just giant cat. Which is scarier than before. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it, it completely redoes the scene in Jurassic Park from a dog playing with a toy to a cat absolutely aware there are small children in this <laughs> and it's just having fun. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't want to be fed. It wants to hunt. <laughs> and that will bring us to the end of the news, which means after the break, we can go on to our topic and start discussing what is a species. Strap in. <laughs> So as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the term species is widely used, but the concept of species is much more complex and actually debated than many people may realize. Uh, now, you, David, actually have a good bit of notes on this, so I'm going to hand it over to you to introduce us to the concept of species. I sure can do it. Yeah, no, like the in theory, a species is used as sort of the basic unit of taxonomy. Yeah, like the... the right. s- Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species is the 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 fa- the, the, the bottom one, the yeah. foundational All one. the others are made out of a certain number of species. Right. And species is also the term, the concept we use oftentimes when studying evolution, mm-hmm. right? Darwin's book on the origin of species how I do knew I had heard it somewhere before new species come about from old species and so it's this really crucial foundational concept but yeah like you've said one of the boy one of the best ways to start a fight in a room of biologists <laughs> is to step in the middle and go what's a species and then run out and then watch them all fight so let's start with the definition that most people tend to be familiar with because it is the most common one, what is uh, uh, often called the biological species concept, which is that a species is a group of organisms that can interbreed to produce viable offspring. Yeah, offspring that can go on to produce more offspring. Right. This is, you know, you have a population over here and a population over there, but they're the same species because they still exchange genetic information. They're still reproducing. They're still producing uh, uh, offspring. This is why, you know, chimpanzees and humans, not the same species, can't reproduce, can't make viable offspring, Mm -hmm. and so on. This is not only a popular concept, you know, in biology class. This is how most of us are taught what a species is. Yeah, some people may have been thinking of this term when we were going, you know, there's lots of debate. It's like, I no, it's this. Right. Surely this is the term. And also in science, you know, oftentimes scientists studying biology, studying organisms, especially studying animals, are using this concept as our general understanding of what a species is. Kind of the default. This traces its, at least the origins of the modern understanding of it, uh, to a fella named Ernst Mayer back in the 1940s who kind of formalized this way of thinking about what a species is. This concept relies on, the, the, the hinge of it is reproductive unity. Yeah, that, right. Organisms that mate uh, to make new organisms. <laughs> yeah, that's the core of this. If you can make more, then you're a species. 
Now, already, I'm sure there uh, many of you can point out the problems with this <laughs> definition. Uh, one problem is what we spent all of episode 44 discussing. Yep. Which is hybrids. Yeah. The fact that, no, lions and tigers can actually make viable offspring. Yes. That there's tons of examples of groups that we wouldn't normally consider a species doing the thing that this suggests only species should be able to do Mm -hmm. within the species. And that episode, we talked mostly about animals. Don't even get us started on plants. I was going to say, plant hybridization was like foundational to us understanding genetics was just crossing tons of different plants. Right. And yeah, hybridization is rampant in the... The real world. Right. When you can take a piece of one organism and stick it onto a totally different organism and it grows there, your species concept is having troubles. I mean, that's the whole debate on the red wolf that we talked about mm-hmm. in the canines episode. It was like, that was a hybridization issue because canines, yeah, can do that kind of readily. That's right. Episode 94. Speaking of non-animal organisms, the reproductive emphasis of this definition of a species also falls apart at looking at asexual reproducing organisms. Yeah, not all like, life has to mate. Like bacteria. If the definition says... I, I read somewhere, some, someone made this point that I thought was really cool. Um, if your definition is that it's a species as long as it can't reproduce with anything else, then every individual bacterium yes. <laughs> is its own species. Yes. Right? Which, of course, isn't how we would classify those. This definition also runs into trouble with the fact that most of the time we don't observe organisms reproducing. Yes. So, like, when you discover a new species at the bottom of the ocean, what you do, you come back up with, like, two specimens, and that's what you know about this species. You can't observe their reproductive habits. There are a ton of animals that we know really well that we don't know how they reproduce. Yes, like, the issue with the idea that you can confirm a species by whether or not it breeds with others becomes problemsome when a, you may not be able to easily observe that animal mating. Like we've never seen a great white mate, Yep. you know, and there's lots of animals that are secretive in their mating, but also you can't actively test it a lot of the time because what happens in human care versus the wild can be greatly different. And, it would mean that you'd have to go, all right, I found what I think is a new species of cat. Bring me every other species <laughs> of cat. Right. And I will slowly but methodically put them through a dating sim. You can't do that. <laughs> so when you do find a new type of cat or creatures up from the deep, a lot of the time the way we will classify them as a new species is using a slightly different method that doesn't rely on reproduction, but instead relies on largely anatomy yeah right a lot of the time when we're describing new species we're saying okay well there are enough differences in the morphology the structure the anatomy of this species this organism that are different from everything else we know and thus we would classify this as a new species yeah it 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 looks and shaped just a little bit too different for us to categorize it with anyone else. This is often known as the morphological species concept, that a species is something that is morphologically, shape-wise, different enough mm-hmm. from everything else. That this population shares a bunch of these features that no one else has. 
This is also called the the typological species concept. Yeah. Which harkens to one of the sort of cornerstones of taxonomy that going all the way back to Linnaeus, where you would pick up a thing. All right, here is this bird that I shot. Here are all of the features of it. This specimen now represents what we know about this species. Yes. The species I've named is all the animals that have the features I've observed in this bird that I found. Yeah. The type specimen, which we still use today oftentimes. So that is a very common sort of alternative or complement. But again, you can already see where that starts to break down. Yep. A lot of species have a lot of variation in their morphology between sexes, right? Males and females might look very different. Uh, There are plenty of organisms that grow differently in different conditions. Yes, they do. So like, once again, if we can bring it back to plants, some plants are trees, but also bushes sometimes. Yeah, depending on what their environment's doing. Right. And there are animals that'll do stuff like that too. You can also run into issues with ontogeny, as we've discussed before, right? Describing the morphology of a species would tell you that a caterpillar and a butterfly are not the same thing. Yeah, well, it's like if you visit the, if you go up to study life in Antarctica, but you only go in between the winters, you know, the rabbits you see right, are going to be, the rabbits or foxes are going to be very different than if you were to go during winter. Exactly. So once again, here is a proposed definition that doesn't 100% work. Now, at this point, you may be sitting there thinking, well, I can think of a few other ways that you might define species, and you're not alone. So have many scientists. (laughs) Uh, Depending on who is counting, there have been over 20 different definitions of a species formally proposed through scientific uh, publications and, and discussions and stuff. Each definition looks to use different aspects of what might make a species unique. Yes. Right. You. We talked about reproductive isolation. We've got uh, anatomy. There are some that uh, are based on genetic similarity. Yeah. That your definition might be, well, genetically they're similar, which might catch nuance that your anatomy doesn't quite catch. Well, it's uh, what it makes me think of is the eastern rat snake a few years ago was split up into various species along the their north and south ranges because they had color morphs. There mm-hmm. was yellow, red, brown, and black, and each of them were given individual species names, and then genetic research came out and said, actually, all of these are just color morphs of the same species according to the genetics. Right. And that happens fairly often. There are also uh, definitions of species that focus on the ecological habits mm-hmm. of a group that, okay, all of these organisms share a similar spot in their ecosystem and their environment and thus are under similar pressures and behave similarly and live in the similar place and interact. There are definitions that are based on cladistics. So a species under this idea might be a group of individuals that share a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. Like you are all descended from a ancestral population, that's what makes you a species, which then, of course, runs into the issue of, okay, but how far back? Yeah. Where do you draw the line? It's the the common example of if you take it far enough back, we're all fish. Right. And there are all sorts of different definitions. There's lots of disagreement among scientists of which definitions are better than others, which ones... 
uh, are better representative of this concept. And it matters which one you use. Yeah. Because if you're basing your species concept, if you're trying to identify a species, if you're looking at anatomy versus genetics versus behavior, you're going to get different results. Like the example you just gave, genetics and anatomy aren't always going to tell you the same thing. Yeah, it seems like they should be in agreement because genetics is what tells your body to grow a certain way. Right. To give you a morphology. So they should be hand in hand, but there's numerous examples of the anatomy studies and the genetic studies actively disagreeing with each other on the findings. Right. And then we've got all those issues with the reproductive, uh, with hybrids and such, defying what you might expect looking at genetics or looking at behavior otherwise. And it matters further because of how we use species. Mm-hmm. Right. We use species for studies of diversity, for studies of evolution, to help us understand extinction, right? When we classify an endangered species or an extinct species, that kind of requires us to know what we mean when we say species. There's tons of examples of an animal becoming endangered because it was discovered you're actually two species, which splits your population numbers in half or into like a third and two thirds. And now that third of a population, which is a new species, is critically endangered. Right. We (laughs) thought that there were 10,000 of you and you were doing okay, but you were split. So it turns out one of those species has 2,000 and now you're in trouble. Yes. So this kind of matters because of the way we use species. What your definition is will affect the results you're getting. It will affect how you're trying to understand life. Yeah, and the conclusions you're drawing from the way you're looking at that life. And this has led, you know, corollary to this argument of what is a species. There is this other debate that has come out of this, which is, is a species? Yeah. Uh, Is species even a real thing? Is Is it just an idea that we applied to life? Right. Does it actually naturally exist? And there is some debate about that. Mm -hmm. Some argue that, yes, a species is, in fact, the functional unit of evolution, right? That evolution acts upon species. Others would argue that populations are what's important, whether or not you've named them or or not, or you've grouped them together or, or whatever. Some have argued that giving names to species is actually detrimental because now you're confusing we're confusing ourselves by arbitrarily grouping these together under this name. And if that's not reflective of how nature is actually working on them, we're distracting ourselves with this. Yeah, that, that we're setting up uh, verbal barriers that we're just going to have to tear down later. Right. Because it's not actually accurate. And then there's there are some who argue that species is kind of a thing mm-hmm. or that it is enough of a thing that it's still useful for us as long as we keep in mind that there is a bit of arbitrarity to what counts as a species. It's just kind of the camp I tend to fall out in. Yeah, that it's, it's, uh, I don't know that I, I, I'm on board with getting rid of the concept of species yeah. entirely because it sure seems useful. Although opponents would say uh, that might, might say that species is a holdover from the Linnaean taxonomic yes. system, or even from before that. And as we've discussed before, 
a lot of those terms are kind of informal. Mm-hmm. Kingdom, phylum, class, etc. So why should species be any different? And then others argue that species is the one of those that actually does have mm-hmm. boundaries and definitions. Well, it's... So there, there is some debate about even if we should be bothering trying to define this this term. Well, a, a big part of what makes species kind of weird, and a lot of those terms weird, is like when I was first learning about family order class and all of the way we classify things, I had it in my head as a, as a younger person that all classes of organism are on an equivalent level. Right, that that the class Insecta mm-hmm. is comparable to the class Mammalia. And that you could do the same thing with families and the same thing with orders, that you could line them up, you right. know, that it's, <laughs> we've been watching the new Digimon, and it's like, you could line up, here's all the rookie, here's all the <laughs> champion, here's all the ultimate. Right. That they were in the same ranking system, and then just through trying to apply that became very clear very quickly that no, not all families are equal. Not all orders or classes are comparable. And even species has that issue of like, you know, here's the species of coelacanth where there is only but a few, but then here are multiple species of canines, which kind of interbreed very freely and are all very similar in many ways. Right. And like, you know, some species are very distinct while others are less so. And then you have subspecies to where it's like, yeah, it's, this one has groups, but they're all the same. So yeah, there is some vagueness even down on that level on how we group things. And that becomes important, you know, to use an example from our podcast. We talk about mass extinctions a lot. Yep. And you will often see the the statistics of a mass extinction. Yeah, well... 85% of species went extinct in that mass extinction, and in this one, 95% of species went extinct. And there is a validity to wondering, all right, but are those species the same? Yes. And, and even those 85%, you know, are some of those, what we call a species, is that capturing different levels of diversity, different levels of evolutionary process differently in this group of reptiles versus this group of mammals. Now, I don't want to finish this discussion point giving off the impression that species is just a useless term and and you should ignore it forever, even though there are probably people out there who are of the opinion that, no, maybe we should move away from species. No, 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 you're good. That that was a good way to wrap (laughs) it up. You did it. No, good job, guys. And I, I want to talk instead about, because the point of this podcast is not to, to say how things should be. No. Uh, but instead <laughs> how they are. Yeah, we, we are, neither of us are in a position or of expertise to make those comments. Listen, people have been arguing about this since at least Darwin. Yeah. We're not going to solve it on our dinky little podcast. <laughs> that, that, that's going to, uh, I have to throw out my <laughs> conclusion that I wrote. <laughs> and in fact, I want to, I, I wrote it down. I might as well, now seems like a good time to bring it up was a quote from Darwin in The Origin of Species, apparently. No one definition has satisfied all naturalists, yet every naturalist knows vaguely what he means when he speaks of a species. Yes. Which I think is the best definition of species that I found in my research, is, you. yeah, we all kind of know what we mean when we say species. Well, and, and that really so is... So it kind of works. That really is a big core of it, is 
Is the term species problematic? Yes. Is it vague and inconsistent? It can be. But as long as you can describe what you mean when you say it, we can work with that. If you read scientific papers, oftentimes in the introduction, you know, or sometimes even in the abstract, the researchers will say, we are studying this concept, you know, this species, and for the purposes of this paper, we are using this definition of species. Right. And that gets into the, the question of how we actually apply species. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that different concepts are used in different circumstances. Absolutely. So if you are a geneticist trying to understand species diversity, you are probably going to use a definition of species based on genetics. Yes. If you are an ecologist, you might use a definition that focuses more on the ecological niche of your group. People who study bacteria are going to be using favoring different definitions often than people who study plants versus people who study animals. Different versions of species get used in different places because they work better in different circumstances. Because the reality is the evolution of a species involves change in genetics and morphology and reproduction and ecology, but those things don't all change the same ways, in the same order, at the same time, at the same rate. We don't always have the same amount of evidence or understanding of each of those, so we may be limited in what we know. So everyone is kind of finding the version that best captures what it is they're trying to study. Yeah, and also I think it's good to make a point that, though there are these issues with the species concept, it's not that they're just horrifically rampant. Like, a lot of species are very solid from multiple points of view. Oh, yeah. Like, morphologically, we agree that it looks like it's a species. Genetically, it also seems like it's a species. It also doesn't seem to be reproducing with other species. Like, right. there are plenty of species that seem very solid from multiple uh, points of uh, of analysis, but then there are others who are less so. Right. It's, it's like the term fossil. Mm-hmm. It's like... This is a useful term. It's functional. People know what you mean when you say it. Most of the time we're in agreement. But when you get to the edges of the definition, things start to get hazy and scientists start to argue with each other. Yes. Which, of course, brings us to the field that we uh, Mm -hmm. tend to focus on, paleontology. You may notice that most of the things we've said so far don't work for fossils. Yes. You don't know who's reproducing in the fossil record most of the time. You don't have genetics most of the time. You can't look at an ecological niche or uh, behavioral things. A lot of that is missing. Absolutely. Which means we have to kind of look for different things when we're identifying a species in the fossil record, or at least keep things in mind. There are some of those concepts that are still used. The morphological species concept we use quite often in the fossil record because that's looking at anatomy, which for animals and plants is typically what we have. Right. The fossil fossils are mostly structural. Yes. We don't have the behavior. We can't check who they're reproducing with. Yeah. Outside of like the rare circumstance with younger things mm-hmm. that you can maybe get DNA and yeah. look for evidence of interbreeding. Beyond that, yeah, no, we don't know who's breeding with whom. Yeah. And there are some examples that have come up, like reproductive structures 
every now and then do preserve and stuff like insects. Yep. Where you go, hey, that puzzle piece doesn't match up to that puzzle piece. Yep. And indeed, in insects in the fossil record, and even modern insects, the anatomy of genitalia is often a feature used to differentiate species. Our friend Josh, that was that was his philosophy, is if the genitals don't match, it's a new species. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can apply some of these concepts in certain situations. It's what you were saying, different circumstances sometimes require different approaches. And with fossils, we have to deal with what we're given. You know, we don't get to choose what we find. If we happen to find insects that have preserved genitals, all right, we can study that. If not, then we don't get to use that for this purpose. Well, it's like I've talked about with snake fossils. Mm -hmm. A lot of fossil snake species are named based on vertebrae, not because they're the best choice of all the bones in a snake, but because that's what we have Absolutely. to work with. And so by far the most common uh, d- definition for species that you'll see with the fossil record is ones focusing on the anatomy, describing elements of the skeleton, backbones or vertebrae, or what's been found. You know, mm-hmm. we have the leg and a few ribs of this dinosaur. All right, well, that's what you've got to work with. Right. And they're different enough from all the other legs Mm -hmm. and ribs that, yeah, that's a speed. And like you said earlier, generally we're in agreement on that as a practice. That's how we identify species, and it's worked out pretty well so far. Yes, we have not run into just huge moments of, my God, it's all wrong. Right. But there are moments where you may find too little to actually identify. Uh, that's something that happens with the fossil record that you don't really run into with living organisms is that you may go, hey, we've got a couple parts of a few ribs. It looks like it's from this group, but we cannot place it with a species nor confirm that it is a new species. Right. It is a sp. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it is a species of this group, maybe. Yeah. It's a species of something, but we don't yeah. know what species. So you may get only partial identification. But there are some major issues because we only have, not only may we only have part of the the remains, but only parts of organisms tend to preserve. We don't get the soft tissue, typically. With plants, we don't get the whole plant. We may get a leaf and not the tree it came from. We may not get the pollen that was associated with that leaf or the flower that went with that leaf. And so we can be missing major identifying features that are critical for like animals today where you identify them by coat color right and that is another question that comes up often in paleontology is the question of if a species in the fossil record is the same as a species today because a lot of species today are identified based on genetics or soft tissue things whereas their skeletons look identical yes but in the fossil record all we get oftentimes are skeletons. So we are, what we call a species based on fossils is a different degree of diversity potentially than what we would call a species living today. Yeah, ideally for, especially when we're doing evolutionary studies and taxonomic, you know, grouping of life studies, our definitions or our our resolution on how we're identifying species should be equivalent. You know, that a fossil species is the same sort of population, you know, or being identified, that we're identifying the same kind of population as we'd identify with living species. But the truth is, we can't, 
we can never truly know whether we are doing that. Right. Because if we were to suddenly magically resurrect those mice we were just studying and they all come out and go, wow, you're all very different. Right. You just have very similar skeletons. Yeah. We could suddenly realize this is actually, we were actually representing five species as one here. While with another fossil species, we could magically resurrect it with our wand. Boop. And it's like, oh, yep, you are distinct. Yeah. And you all look the same. All signs point to yes. You were a good species. So we and, can never truly know. And we should make the point. This isn't like some deep, dark secret of paleontology. No. We know this. Yes. And, if you and ask any paleontologist, <laughs> they would tell you this. Uh, and, you know, some people are more or less critical of how different researchers use the concept of species. Uh, sometimes you'll see someone might do a study comparing living to extinct species. And another researcher might say, well, that's your treating them with too much equivalence mm -hmm. and others might say well no that's that's basically okay we're looking for trends and patterns this is an issue that we're aware of and we are trying to make adjustments for while doing the research right and i that's a, a big part of how we handle this issue this issue this problem called the species problem yes this is a philosophical problem you can google that and it will bring <laughs> you multiple results is keeping in mind where the uncertainties are and then working around them as best we can. There are other concepts that get used a bit more often in the fossil record uh, that can be applied to some groups today, like the evolutionary concepts where it's what is your evolutionary history? What is your lineage? And that's how we'll group and identify your species. That can be used in the fossil record quite often because we're looking at lineages. We're looking at more time so we can map you out on your lineage and that's how we're identifying a lot of times so that can be used a kind of similar grouping to that is called chrono species which is when we are looking at a single lineage so not branching but one lineage and that at the beginning of that lineage the population the individuals are different enough to those at the end of the lineage that we can say this you know this line has in point A and B, and they are different enough that now it is species A and B. Right, right. The, that, that both through time and morphology, they are different enough to be separate. Yeah, when you when you bring in the, the extra dimension of time, yep. right? Most of our species concepts that we use with living organisms are snapshots. Yeah, things we can test on you right now. Right now, but they, you know, we, we talk about, well, these can interbreed, so they are... Uh, species, but that population can't breed with these, so they're not the same species. But if you go back a million years, they might have been able to interbreed. And so you're, a lot of species concepts struggle through time. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, sometimes paleontologists might use that, okay, well, somewhere we have to draw a line. Uh, there's also uh, evolutionary-based species concepts you know, I mentioned that the different concepts are focusing on different aspects mm -hmm. that are shared. Shared reproduction, shared anatomy, shared genetics. Uh, there are versions of the species concept whose focus is on shared evolutionary trajectory. Yes, yes. That, okay, here's a group that we have fossils over, you know, half a million years. And in that time, they're differing from the start to the to the finish of that, from, from early to later. But the whole population, this whole group, is following the same trends at roughly the same time. They're still living in the same place. 
they're on a journey together. Yeah, we're seeing similar changes show up across the group. Right. It is, it is. And the definition is something along the lines of, or a definition might be something along the lines of a group of individuals, of organisms that are connected and consistent across time and space. That, yeah, now what they're sharing is their evolutionary journey. Mm-hmm. So even though, you know, uh, one example that I came across was in Australopithecus afarensis, mm-hmm. where the later ones, the jaw structure is different, but they all show that change, that trend in the jaw structure. So they're often considered this is the same species and it started with a branching event that this lineage branched off and it ends when this lineage either goes extinct or branches into something different. Well, it's like how you hear with us humans that's like humans in the past on average were smaller, you know, shorter, right. slightly less, you know, body weight than the average human today. It's not to say that there aren't small people today that would be smaller than then and big people back then that would dwarf me, but that in general, as a species, we've been getting a bit bigger right. over our recorded history, but it's still Homo sapiens. We're still humans. And that's something you can do in fossils that you can't do with living things. Yeah, you do get a different perspective from the fossil record because now not only do you have to deal with time, but you also have the advantage of time to be able to actually look at a history all at once. Right. But then, of course, the issue with trying to build a universal definition on that is that usually you don't get that. Yeah. So what, what about the dinosaur where we have three spe- three specimens? Right. What are, you, what are we going to do with that? <laughs> so the issue with species uh, isn't that there isn't a definition of species. And it isn't even that there isn't a good definition of species or, no. a, or a, a, a useful definition of species. It's that there isn't a universal definition of species. Absolutely. That you you do run into conflict when you get a botanist versus a zoologist versus a paleontologist. One size does not fit all. And there have been papers and discussions and debates and arguments for decades of people trying to figure out how to resolve that. To reconcile. Can we, is there a universal definition we can all agree on? Is there something that works? Do we even need that? Or is what we're doing now just fine? Are there just precautions we have to take? So without rehashing things that we've already said, the species problem is really that this is a concept that we use in various ways, that Mm -hmm. is useful in various ways, but is hazy when you try to get into the details, the nitty gritty of it, which causes conflict in a a group of people whose entire career is built on getting into the nitty gritty of things. Well, (laughs) what it makes me think of is if you ever talk to like mathematicians, like people who actually study math and the the foundations of math and like all of them will agree math works, you know, obviously we've built everything off of it. Right. But then there are debates of like, did we invent numbers or did we discover numbers? Right. Which is the same thing with species. Exactly. It is. Did we dis- do we discover species? Or to to what extent is a species a hypothesis? Exactly. When you describe and I, I read that this described this way somewhere, a species when you describe a species, you're making a hypothesis mm-hmm. about 
this group of organisms and their evolutionary history and their interactions, how much is that hypothesis reflective of an actual unit? Mm -hmm. Is it like a cell and an organism, a species? How refined is that as a thing? Exactly. And so it's, it's working. Like we've been progressing our understanding. It's, It's doing all right. It's still pulling its weight. But when you really zoom in, there are some sometimes uncomfortable questions <laughs> that come up when you realize, oh, well, that's a bit weirder than I thought it was. And uh, as with every episode, there will be a blog post that goes mm-hmm. along with this. And we'll put links to articles that discuss some of these things. Yes. So if you want to go on a deep dive and immerse yourself in d- discussions and debates about go species. down that rabbit hole. Enjoy. We will provide you with the, the pass to get on that train. Now, part of what makes species so variable and hard to nail down is partially due to how we get new species, which is also extremely variable and sometimes hard to nail down. Yep. So we'll discuss that after the break. So speciation, once again, is the process of a species giving rise to new species. Now, this can either be a species transitioning into being a new species or splitting and giving rise to one or two new species. Right, diverging. Diverging. Into uh, daughter species, perhaps. Exactly. This concept was proposed by Darwin. Mm-hmm. Like. On the origin of species, he discussed speciation. Right. That's what that title means. Uh, oftentimes people will uh, uh, incorrectly tie it into questions of the origin of life. Yes. But that's not what he meant. The origin of where do species come from? Yeah. Where does the diversity of life come from? How do species, How do new species arise? And the answer that he came up with is from old species, except for the one time yes. that life arose on the yeah. planet. Uh, yeah, no, that species can give rise to new species. And the main mechanism that he proposed was natural selection. The, the crux of his new thesis that by gaining new traits through mutations, which he didn't have the term for, but through random traits being selected or for or against eventually building up new traits that are selected for or losing traits that are selected against, the animal becomes different or the organism becomes right. different. The, the population over intergenerational time. Yes. Right. Your children and then your children's children, etc., are gradually building up changes. As, as a quick referential note, for more on Darwin episode 28, Alfred Russell Wallace episode 54, the history of evolutionary thought... Episode 56, and for more examples of evolution in action, every episode of the podcast. (laughs) And so, absolutely. And his emphasis was on the gradual aspect of it in many ways. Darwin very much believed in it. It was a slow, steady, monotonous march of a population of organisms becoming a new species of those organisms. Which is, is still pretty solid. In many ways that we view it, we've just 
added a bit more nuance and detail now with the current understanding. So let's go through some of the parts, because there's a lot of variety. Like, that's a very simple explanation. Natural selection or, you know, evolution, eventually you are too different to be considered the same species. Yeah. But how and why? Right. The first main aspect, and this is often building off of the biological species concept, the core, though, typically is reproductive isolation. That to become a new species, you have to stop breeding with the rest of the population. Because otherwise, if you continue breeding, you know, even if you are evolving differently, if you're just breeding the whole time, then any changes are just going to become mixed in with the overall population. The gene pool will never differentiate. It will stay as one pool. Right. So so even if you're using anatomy to differentiate species or genetics or your evolutionary trajectory, right, your, your pattern, as long as you're still reproducing, you're still sharing all those things. Yes. So this isn't just to identify, are, are you having sex? It's It's if you are mating, then differences are not going to become unique to either group. Because you're sharing. Right. (laughs) You're sharing too much. (laughs) So reproductive isolation is key. And there's a few ways this can become established. And they fall into two categories, which is pre-mating and post-mating. Things that happen before you even mate that keep you from reproducing. Or things that happen after you've mated that makes that reproduction not matter. You know, either it's not successful or just isn't worthwhile for some reason. Some of these pre-mating barriers, as they're called, or pre-embryonic barriers is what they'll also be called, include a few different things. One of them can be physical barriers, that you are kept from breeding by physical separation. Right. Mountains. Yeah. Something is in the way, so you're not breeding. Ergo, you are able to start becoming different. Right. You can imagine two populations, or, or, you know, one group of organisms that is spread across a continent and then something happens and a river flows between them or a seaway forms Mm -hmm. or mountains rise and now they are split in two and the two different groups can no longer exchange genetic material they can no longer breed yeah never never between shall the two ever meet again and we'll go into more detail on the varieties of that physical separation but there are also barriers that can happen even when you're in the same place together or, or have been reintroduced potentially, you know, maybe you were separate and now you've come back. You still have to not be breeding or else you'll lose the differences you've gained. One of the popular ones, I know this is one of your favorites is temporal isolation. Oh yeah. I, I remember when I first learned about this concept, probably like in high school or something. And it blew my young mind where I realized that you can be reproductively isolated just by missing each other in time. Yeah, it's if you've ever worked at a place that has like a, a 24-hour schedule, ha, I'm sure anyone who's worked jobs like that has had a moment where they've met a coworker that they've been at the same business for years and never met because they work the night shift and you work the day shift. Right. So if you have a plant a, a group of plants that live in the same place but these are mating and blooming and and exchanging pollen in May, and these are doing it in March. Okay, well, they're not exchanging genetics. They're not reproducing together. Exactly. You're partying at the wrong times. Right. And you can have this with animals, too, where, you know, your reproductive season, Mm -hmm. if you're doing it in the fall and you're doing it in the spring, 
there's no opportunity for you to breed, to Absolutely. mate. Absolutely. And so you can get this separation where it's just your behaviors are not syncing up. Right. Your calendars are off. Exactly. You can also get behavioral isolation in a more general sense. Where maybe it's not that your timing is wrong, but your song is wrong. Your mating <laughs> display is just, ugh, it's gross. Right, right, it right. It doesn't turn me on. It makes me think of, uh, I had the pleasure for several years of living with two pets. Yes. A dog and a cat, both of whom were about eight pounds. Yeah, like, you, they, they were... Same size. Same weight class. <laughs> and it was so funny watching them interact because there'd be times where one of them or both of them would be wanting to play, <laughs> but they both had very different ways of saying, I want to play now, and the other one would just be confused. Yeah. The cat would swat at the dog and then fall over and hold her paws up, like, I'm ready to wrestle, and the dog would be like, all right, I'm gonna leave now because you're acting weird. Yep. And it just didn't... They never played because they didn't know how to recognize each other's invitations. And the dog's like, why is it every time I try to chase you around, you fall over? Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You need to keep running. Like, stop giving up. So if it's that, but with mating, well, then, yeah, you're not picking up what the other one's putting down. It's that the the call you use is wrong. Uh, Potentially the the place that you're displaying. (laughs) You're right. You're up in the canopy and everyone else is down on the ground. Is that like any sort of weird behavior that would make another mate think twice (laughs) could start separating or maintain separation. Or even uh, uh, in the case of plants, because I'm trying Mm -hmm. to think Allie's in my brain. Yep. Like Professor Oak, she's back here and she's like, talk about plants. I've got, I'm thinking if you have plants who are attracting different pollinators. Yep. You know, that's a way you could end up separating. That is indeed the example uh, that was given in some of the papers I was looking at. Oh, I must be a smart guy. You're you're pretty good. (laughs) Is that, yes, if your flowers are, you know, only attracting this kind of bee and that bee only goes to your flowers, then sorry, everybody else. You're not getting this pollen. And so the pollinator's behavior can start to affect the plants. You can also have ecological isolation, which is very similar to when you're talking about ecological species, where you occupy or rely on different parts of the ecosystem or different ecosystems. And so the canopy is a good example where it's like, I love the leaves at the top of the trees while I like it a little further down. And if we're consistent enough in those two uh, 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 parts of the ecosystem, those two groups may never meet up. Right. You're always way up there. Yeah. We're in the same space. I can see you. Mm -hmm. On a map, we'd be right on top of each other. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, we're not actually interacting. We're not occupying the same part of our ecosystem, our habitat. We may be, you know, there's lots of examples of this with insects that predate and or parasitize or mate on specific plants. Right. We're in the same field, but I like this leaf and you like this leaf and we're itty bitty insects. So our entire worlds are these two shrubs and therefore we never actually interact. Right. So we're we're using different resources. Yes. It's I need this food. I can't eat that plant. You know, so if I came over, I'd be starving. Ecological uh, uh, drives can keep you from keep you from mixing genetics. Now, these are all things that prevent mating from happening. Right. We're not interacting or we're not interacting correctly. So 
We just don't seal the deal. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. There are things that can happen even if two animals do decide to mate that still will keep them from reproducing successfully or in a way that matters. The first is gamete incompatibility. Your egg and your sperm just don't match. Yep. Something's different. There's some receptor or mm-hmm. some feature that they just don't click. And there are lots of versions of this. Uh, plants, once again, there are situations where either certain plant pollens are just less likely to fertilize a different plant. You know, they can, they could, but the host plant, you know, the the, the plants of the same species will always have more successful pollen. So your pollen's just not really entering the race in any meaningful way. Uh, there are some where it actively just does not fit. You know, just the puzzle pieces don't match up. That pollen will not fertilize that ovum. A mechanical isolation, yep. I think is the term I learned back in high school. Uh, there are some examples where perhaps the female's reproductive tract is more harsh to other spe- sperm from other groups' males. Okay. That even if you mate, the sperm's just not going to make it to the egg right. because... It's too acidic or it's the, there's too many defenses in there. Exactly. It. It's the wrong sperm to be in there. So it just doesn't survive. And even more extreme, there are some females who have a biological reaction to the wrong sperm. Mm-hmm. That they have an immune response and actively kill sperm that's not from their closely related males, their same species males. So it may just be that mating between these two hypothetical groups just does not yield impregnation. That you just don't actually fertilize anything. So you've made all you want, but nothing's going to happen. But even in groups where they do produce hybrids, you know, where you mate and a baby is born, there are still ways that that hybrid can be the end of the story. One, the common one is sterility. That you... A horse and... Donkey. Donkey. (laughs) A horse and a donkey mate, make the mule, and it just the mule can't make babies. Right. The the, the genetics, the morphology has come together in a way that you've created something that just can't... isn't compatible with anything else. Yeah. And that even if you were to make more mules, they will not make a population of mules because once those die, there will be no babies. Right. So that's hybrid sterility, which is very common if there is some genetic, like, foundational difference. You know, Mm -hmm. number of chromosomes is typically one of the big issues. If you have 23 and this one has 22 chromosome pairs, the hybrid may live and be healthy, but its its genetics are not quite right to then produce gametes that will work. There's also hybrid inviability which is referring to you make a hybrid and it could even be able to mate. It's just not as good as the parents. Mm. And this can happen if you have two populations that have become specialized. You know, think of the ecological you know, species mindset where it's, I'm good at deserts and I'm good at savannas and we meet where the savanna and desert meets and our baby's not really actually good at either. Right. It's, You've gotten some of my desert features and some of my and some of mom's savanna features, but now you, no matter which one you live in, you will not do as well as the purebred species in that area. Right. So you just don't really survive well. Right. So reproductive habits are favoring the two extremes, mm-hmm. 
and diminishing the middle. So that there ends up being selection against the hybrids. Right. That those species who choose to hybridize actually have less success with offspring than species who choose to stay among their own kind. Right. You know, to to select (laughs) same species. Who Capulet and Montague. Yes. The the situation. Yes, exactly. This is a a barrier that supports (laughs) 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 the splitting of the families. And so it could just be that, yeah, you can hybridize, but there's no point to it. And what's really interesting about this whole list is that you can imagine any or multiple of these things gradually becoming an issue mm-hmm. over the course of the development of a of a population. Or as a population kind of spreads to new places, you could gradually get slight, you know, you're in the savannah, you're in the desert, and your behavior is changing a little bit, or you're taking on different uh, morphologies because you're mostly breeding together mm-hmm. and you're only crossing occasionally and once those differences reach a enough difference you can start seeing this differentiation this splitting of two different parts of what would have once been a species absolutely and then you can also have this happening in one lineage where you reach a point, and this gets a little bit more theoretical, mm-hmm. where you've changed enough over time that what you are now would not be compatible with what you were a hundred generations ago. Exactly. That that if you could get in a time machine and go back a hundred generations, you couldn't or wouldn't interact with your ancestor. Yeah. And so you would you wouldn't end up be making offspring. And now you have developed enough difference that we might consider you a different species. I mean, it's a, if you take humans, for example, and it's uh, all of the time machine movies basically ever where it's like we go back to the past or someone from the past comes here and then the interactions just don't work. So, yeah, right. that's behavioral isolation. Right. It's, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to sleep with someone who says doth and thou. <laughs> like, no, that's weird. Weird. Yeah. You don't even know what to uh, t- TikTok is let, now. Let me here talking about uh, generational isolation. The first thing that came to my mind was to say Vine. <laughs> yeah, and then I went, "Oh, it's happening right now, isn't yep. it?" Yep. <laughs> it's like the first time people our age heard the word "yeet." I mean, you what? You what? What is that even? Yeah. Well, I guess we won't be dating. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so for the best. These differences will will accumulate and either split populations away from each other or differentiate ancestors from descendants now the next question is how do these differences get started Mm -hmm. because it it makes sense yeah well yeah if you're awake during the day and i'm awake at night we're not going to be hanging out but why did you start being awake during the day and i start being awake at night like if we're hanging out all the time how do we suddenly start being different especially if we're the same species and in the same population And this is where we get into some of the models of speciation that often focus on geography. Your relation to the other populations or to your own species. And there are a few categories of models of how we think and how we've observed new species to arise using the mechanisms and barriers that we were just discussing. So any of those can happen in these various situations, but this is how they could potentially get started. Mm -hmm. The most common that you'll typically see first and pretty much agreed upon 
most likely most common yeah. uh, and model. The, and the most intuitive. Is allopatric speciation. Allo meaning different. Different. Other. This is you are physically separated. You're a in a different river. place. Yes. A river split you. You're on both sides of the canyon like the, the Grand Canyon squirrels. Mountain range rose up in between where your populations were. Thus, continents split apart. Right. The western interior seaway has flooded the middle of the continent. Etc., etc., etc. Your two chunks of your species are now in different places. So, you literally can't breed because you're not together anymore. And the idea here is that once you're separate, even if there's not, like, super big differences about where you are... Just the mere fact that you're not sharing genetics means you're almost certainly going to start developing differences. Right. Just through random genetic drift, random mutations, if it's random, the likeliness that my group and David's group are getting the same mutations is astronomically small. (laughs) And those differences are going to slowly accumulate over time until the model goes, even if we brought you back together... That reproduction is not going to happen. Absolutely. Though there are models of this where we could see driving factors. If we get split by that canyon and one side of the canyon becomes lush grassland and the other is dry badlands. Well, now not only are you randomly experiencing different things as populations, but you have different environments. Right. The selective pressure Mm -hmm. on you. Is now it is now beneficial for you to be active at night and you to be active during the day, so that and in that case it might even happen faster. Yes, and we call this divergent evolution. You are being pushed apart by selective pressures to survive better in different places. You may also see a a subset of allopatric speciation called peripatric speciation, which is when you have your main population and then a small section of that instead of you being split in half. You have just like a little branch that gets popped right. off. The, the the continent was flooded and it created an island. Mm-hmm. And now the 10% of the species that's left on that island is now isolated. Which can drive speciation the exact same way. But now we're dealing with small population dynamics, which can lead to like bottlenecking. You, you may have a very small subset of the genetics. Right. You know, you, if you, you happen to be a group that we're all a little bit you know, more one way. Now you only have those options to evolve with. Right. That's the founder effect. The founder effect. Which is if a random 10% of the species was cut off from the rest and it just so happened that a bunch of them were unusually tall. Yeah. Well, now it's the norm for that population to be unusually tall. Well, it's like if aliens came to Earth to like collect humans for their, their zoo and they just happened to visit Ireland... Well, then <laughs> the new population of humans in this new environment are all going to look like me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> They're all going to be redheaded and freckled and pale skinned. Right. Because that's what you started with. And that has become the foundation for your new diversity. Yes. So you can see d- diversity with this. Uh, there's also one called centrifugal speciation, which is if your population if expands. You s- if you spin the species spin around them out, really fast. You will gather... The new species at the edges, no. Right, and it'll shoot one off into a new environment. <laughs> at the bottom of the cylinders. <laughs> if your species population, if your, your range expands and then contracts, it can leave behind pocket populations 
after the retraction. Oh, uh, like fish. Like fish. Yeah, where you'll have big lakes that then recede and leave behind lots of smaller lakes. Exactly. So you can get these situations, you know, and it could be that, you know, temperatures increase. So so groups are able to move up the mountainsides as temperatures get better. But then when they cool again, they have to retract back down. And now there's ones trapped in the valley because mm-hmm. they were able to get over there. So some physical separation is how we get allopatric speciation. Parapatric speciation, the next one, is you're not physically separated from the overall population, but your population is widespread. Like, think across a country, coast to coast, east to west, north to south, whichever way you want to go, so much so that the edges Mm -hmm. are not interacting. The middle is interacting, but you have these you know, portions of your same species that are now hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away from members of the same species experiencing California versus Georgia, you know, and now the selective pressures are different. You're not actually interacting. So you could end up getting differences on the ends Mm -hmm. that then can start to drive speciation as those differences set in. This one is typically considered to be less common and less likely to happen than allopatric for obvious reasons is that you are still interbreeding even if it's only in the midsection. Right. And we talked about a version of this at in a patron question not too mm-hmm. long ago uh, where we also talked about ring species. Yes. That with, is one of the examples that will often fall into this category. Right. Which is that you can have a population where two ends either far apart from each other or wrapped around uh, the Arctic Circle or a, a mountain range mm-hmm. are experiencing differences. And this could potentially lead to enough difference that you speciate into two different species. Now, the issue with this and many of the theories that we're going to discuss with speciation is that, like the ring species, there's a lot of examples for that, none of which really hold up well to scrutiny or have at least been heavily questioned or criticized. So like there's not a perfect example of a ring species. It is solid as a concept. And there are some things that seem like maybe it might fit that example, but still to this day, we don't have a solid one. And there are examples with uh parapatric speciation that seem to be, you know, good, solid evidence, but when we're identifying speciation in the modern day, we can't do it in real time in the fact that we can't watch you speciate because everyone researching it will be dead. <laughs> yeah. Or you've already speciated and we missed the last thousands of years of evolution that got you here. We can only catch it in the act. Yes. We get a snapshot of it. We either catch it in the act or we go, all right, these two species are both in this environment with these features. Sure does seem that most likely it was allopatric, that they were separated. Right. And then eventually these got back over here. Or it's parapatric in that they're occupying different habitats at either end. But we can't watch it happen. So sometimes it's very hard to distinguish which was the cause Or is it actually happening? Right. These are models that we use to then try to explain what we're seeing in in, in the organisms we're studying. Say, yeah, this seems to fit this model. 
And another complication is that any of these can reverse. Yeah. You know, with Allopatric, the mountain range rises up, but then it erodes and the two populations meet up again and aren't different enough right. so that when they are able to meet up, they start interbreeding and blend back together as a single species again. So just because one of these starts doesn't mean we're going to get a new species. Right. But these are the models in how they can happen. There is one more, which is the most contested, and that is sympatric speciation, where you are in the same environment. You're not super spread out. You're right on top of each other. But some driving force still causes the population to split into distinct species. Right. Even though you're not physically separated in any way, a portion of the population becomes different. And this one's problematic for the fact that it seems very unlikely because you're on top of each other. Like, we have not separated you. We haven't sent you to your rooms at all. You're just right there. And there is, once again, questionable evidence there's a lot of researchers who kind of question if this actually really happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Sympatric, there's lots of uh, debate around, lots of criticisms. Typically, the suggestion is that either there is a strong driving force for you not to mate, you know, that behavior somehow starts kicking in, or that you're very strongly preferring different ecological sources, you know, environments or food sources, that ecologically you're being driven apart. Yeah, I only eat this plant, you only eat that plant, that sort of situation. These would need to be strong selective pressures to overcome the fact that you're still in the same forest. Right. And they'd have to persist for a long time. Mm-hmm. There are some examples where species can pop up fairly quickly and could absolutely happen within the same environment as the overall population. Now, another question with speciation is what happens with the hybrids, both during and after groups have started to diverge. And absolutely, if they're still able to hybridize, it can undo the speciation that had happened. Mm -hmm. But there are aspects of hybridization that can reinforce. Reinforcement's actually a mechanism of speciation that you'll see referenced, which is those hybrid sterility and hybrid inviability, where the hybrids actually help push the selections for the new features. Right. If you're if you're starting to develop two different groups of features and when you mix, the hybrids you're making aren't as good like you talked about before, mm-hmm. then there is selective pressure to keep the the mating separated into your two groups. Mm-hmm. That what you're all right, well we hybridized and we had babies and they didn't make it, so they didn't mate. So the genetics are becoming separated on either side. So the individuals who either chose or happened to crossbreed are selected against. So that behavior becomes less likely. Yeah. But there is another option for hybridization, which is speciation again. If you hybridize and you make something new and it is successful, but is not just you hybridizing back to the original species, it could be now a third option. Right. A third successful lineage that could continue then to mate itself, and you could speciate that way. There's not a ton of examples, for sure, of this happening, and there's often debates on the validity, or, you know, whether it should, they, they count as a new species. 
In plants, this is actually known to happen quite regularly, especially due to a mechanism called polyploidy, mm -hmm. which is when you hybridize and you end up copying the genomes of both parents instead of getting just the halves. And so you end up with a double genome that avoids the genetic issues of the parent genomes not matching with like the mule, but keeps you from mating with your parents again. So now you can only mate with other hybrids of your own kind. So that can actually spawn a new species almost instantaneously, <laughs> which is often one of the mechanisms pointed at for sympatry. Right. If you have a genetic moment like this, then it doesn't matter whether you're separated or not because the new species is here already. And now it doesn't, you're in the same field and there's a new species of flower and there it is. You're, you had speciation without having to put a physical barrier of any sort. Right. And I think that that demonstrates one of the things that is a big take home from this list of models of speciation and factors in speciation is that just like we can try to define a species based on all sorts of different factors that interact in all sorts of different ways, new species can arise in all different manners, in all different circumstances. Plants can do things that animals mm -hmm. can't or don't typically do. So speciation is a very diverse, very varied, you know, just as many different types of species as there are. There are different ways to arrive at a new species. Yes, because like with allopatric speciation, you're separated. But then the reason that you stop, you know, reproducing with each other could be that you just randomly became too different for it to work. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't hybridize anymore. You became randomly different enough that you behave differently and you won't match up. You were naturally selected for very different things. So now you don't occupy the same habitats, even when the mountains are removed. Okay, no, but I like the water shoreline now and you like right. the trees. So like the reasons are as can happen for any situation. So you can just keep mixing and matching and there can be multiple ones. I right. could be selected for different habitats. And even if you put us in the same cage, we behave differently now. Right. So we and, still won't. And those differences don't always go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You know, it, for one, two different populations in the exact same circumstance might develop genetic versus morphological differences yes and so it can be very difficult to predict it can be very difficult to model the various steps of speciation might happen in different orders mm -hmm. certain steps might there might be more steps in one version or another version so it it's a very complex you know and, and this is where we get into this issue where with our modern day perspective is that we only see species mostly in a current form. Yep. But what a species is, is a constantly changing and adjusting and evolving group of organisms. And it's very complex. And this is part of what can be confusing about it is that a lot of these concepts of what a species is are de were developed based on ideas looking at just the modern. Yeah. And when you start trying to factor in all the different ways that species can change, it can become very complicated and very difficult to model and very difficult to predict and very difficult to create universal rules around. Well, a great example of that is one of the, the common examples for sympatric speciation are these fish 
that are found in these uh, glacial lakes in Canada, uh, sticklebacks. Mm-hmm. And very famously, in many of the ponds, there are two forms, one which hunts and feeds at the top of the water and one which is a bottom feeder. And they're morphologically different. They look different and have different features and they behave different. And this ecological separation of feeding at the top of the water column and the bottom of the water column has often been pointed at a great example of how you can have two species evolve in the same habitat. But then there has also been evidence that there may have actually been two separate evolutionary lines that then secondarily invaded ponds together so that the bottom feeder and the top of the water sticklebacks evolved separately in different ponds and then were introduced to the share the same ponds. Mm. So so we might be seeing them in the process of speciating or in the process of undifferentiating as they're reintroduced to each other. Or even just occupying the same space now as two species. Ah. And so they may stay two species, but they didn't become two species together. Right. The history can make a big difference in understanding what went on with these two. And, And that gets it, you know, the issue here is, we know this is a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. We have abundant evidence that speciation happens, but trying to nail down exactly how and when and why is all sorts of complex. Absolutely. Which brings us to how do we look at this stuff in the fossil record, which gets interesting because like species, we once again can't use a lot of the ways of analyzing it that we would use today. Like We don't have the full record, so... I can't always know what was on the other side of the canyon. Mm-hmm. You know, I may not have fossils over there. We can't actually analyze all the aspects. We can't take the genetics research for most fossils. We can't you know, verify the breeding status or behavioral status. But we do also gain a few things in that we gain the perspective of time. Yeah, that fourth dimension. Now, while it was kind of weird and difficult with identifying and nailing it on a species, because now you go, well, I actually have this evolutionary line, and where do I designate the new species? Here, we can, if we have a good enough fossil record, watch speciation happen. Yeah. Which we can't do in the modern day. We talked about that in episode 18, how certain aspects of the fossil record of hominins, right, our human ancestors are good enough that you can observe one group giving rise to the next group, giving rise to the next group, and you can get a pretty good sense of these are the ancestors, these Mm -hmm. are the descendants, watching those changes accrue. Absolutely, which becomes really important for one of the things that we can study really only in the fossil record, which is speciation rate. Yes. Because... Today, we only have the snapshots. And even if we're like, ooh, it sure does look like these two populations are speciating. Fast forward 2,000 years, they might stop. Right. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. It might have been for a little bit, they were a little different, and then nothing actually came from it. But in the fossil record, we can say, and there's a new species, and there's a new species, and there's, you know, by whatever definition we're using, we can count and time it out and saying over this 50 million year period, this group saw an average new species showing up every, you know, however many thousand or million years. And we get a rate of speciation, which becomes very important for estimations, mm-hmm. you know, of 
the diversity of a group, how if we have this organism and we know its rough speciation rate, we can kind of figure out, all right, well, taking that backwards, you know, it's likely that its common ancestor with this other group would be somewhere around here based on the rate that they tend to diversify. Things like that. So you can start getting analysis of the overall history in a way we can't do today. And there are ways we can even get potential hints as to what, like, the mode, what the geographical situation was. For instance, if it's allopatric and we sample an area, we're only going to see one of the new species. Versus if we find an example of sympatric speciation, we'd find both new species. And so... As we look at the history, we can sometimes get an idea of it looks like this new species evolved because it was separated because we don't see any of the other species with it or near it. It is only on this island. So it's potentially we can get an idea of even maybe why it speciated or what allowed it to speciate. Yeah, the fossil record, we get to combine not only the information about the organisms, but their environment. Mm-hmm. So the geologic record allows us to study how environments were changing. And so not only can we get a sense of, okay, well, wait, we're seeing these differences. You know, we talked about this was either in a news or it was in episode 87 about ceratopsians, Mm -hmm. about that one study that was looking at, hey, this looks like several different types of ceratopsian dinosaurs kind of gradually giving rise to each other, differentiated by their skull structure. But you can also get examples where you're saying, all right, well, the environment changed. And along with that environmental change, we see this change mm-hmm. in the local species. And this is something that is probably a lot easier with invertebrates because they have a better fossil record. They change more quickly. They're mm-hmm. easier to, to, to study. Yep. But you can s- get a sense of what created those changes. You know, the same way that we can look at uh, back in episode 71 about the Western Interior Seaway, we talked about how the splitting of the continent, uh, North America, gave you different ecosystems on either side. We can watch that happen with species throughout Mm -hmm. the fossil record. And so you can get these cool examples of saying, yeah, we watch speciation happen. Uh, And like you said... The speciation rate, and we talked about uh, episode 55, we talked about background extinction rate and yep, yep, yep. Uh, at what rate do species originate and disappear. And taking it back to the beginning of the episode, your answer is going to partially depend on your definition. Yep. What counts as a species? And so, like we said, in the fossil record, there's only so many ways you can identify a species, which is kind of helpful. Because it means there's only so many different uh, criteria that you can use. But that will impact how we understand species over time. Mm-hmm. And it's extra cool because a lot of these things can then be used to better understand the species or speciation we're looking at today. If we have recent records, recent fossils, we may be able to say... In fact, we, you know, we can confirm this group was indeed found on the mainland and then showed up here. And then we start seeing these features show up. So having that temporal point of view really does help in this, this regard. Yeah. And it, and it, it gets even better when you're younger 
in the geologic record and you can use DNA. Yes, that makes a big difference. You know, we talked uh, last episode, not too long ago, about a bit of news looking at Neanderthal Mm -hmm. and human and Denisovan interbreeding over time. And the great thing there is that you can actually track genetic change from the early ones to the later ones and see how they were hybridizing, see how those speciation, how those species differentiated, how they interacted afterwards. So probably the best case scenario is within the last few hundred thousand years where you get the morphology, you get genetics, you get environment, and over time. Yes. You can watch it happen. And this really sort of encapsulates one of the most important features of all this arguing about species and speciation is that there are ways to test it. Yes. These are testable hypotheses. And so we can refine our understanding of how this happens and come to the better understanding of how best to define things, how best to research things, how best to understand how species change over time. Absolutely. And with that, we're going to kind of bring this to a close. There's lots more we can discuss and lots of other cool examples, but if you follow the links in the blog post, there are many an article that go into more detail and more of the nitty gritties and give a lot of really cool, like specific examples. So check those out if you're itching for more. If you want to hear us talk about something we didn't, you can always ask. But we're going to wrap things up for now just because that's a that's about as much as we can cover with this really complicated topic in the time we have. But yeah, species and speciation, it's fundamental to our understanding of evolution even if the definitions are not always satisfying for every situation which makes them a fascinating not only scientific topic but philosophical topic and And who doesn't who doesn't enjoy semantics (laughs) it's it's kind of core to a lot of what we do hey now i believe before we wrap things up we have a patron question we do Our patrons not only get the wonderful chance to have their name actually shouted out at the beginning of the episode, but they can also ask us questions, submit questions that we'll answer on the podcast like so. So this is one that is related to the topic this time around. This is a patron question from Michael, (laughs) who asks, is there any correlation between carrying capacity and speciation rate? Would a population that colonized a new environment with high resources be expected to evolve slower because there's less competition? So basically asking the question, what's the relationship between the the origination of new species and the amount that a environment can sustain, can provide for? Yeah, that's the carrying capacity is how much life an environment can maintain within it. And it's a good question because there absolutely is something to be said of if my group gets split off and we're in a desert versus tropical paradise, is that going to affect things when one environment is, quote unquote, more harsh than the other? But I'd say it it really depends on the situation in the organism, because if if the populations get split and I'm a, a forest dwelling animal and I get split off into a portion of the forest, then yeah, you're probably not going to see fast divergence in that population because I'm already pretty well adapted to the environment. But 
even if the other population or a different population of organisms gets split off into a really rich, abundant ecosystem, you know, the coral reef, but I was a coastal, like, you know, tide pool animal beforehand, that's still very different. So even if there's lots of abundance there, it still may take a lot of adaptation for me to be successful there for that group to do well there. So you could still see rapid changes in evolution as they adapt to this new, still abundant environment. Yeah, I, I think that my gut uh, answer, and this is looking in the, the broader sense of things, is again to look at the snapshot we have today and extrapolate history from there. The tropics tend to be extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, there are more species in the tropics versus the poles versus high latitudes. And the tropics are famously resource abundant. So that would seem to suggest, and I'm sure there are there are studies about quantifying this, that you're getting more speciation yeah. in the tropics, which might be that sort not it's not that lots of resources mean that there's less competition. It could be you get a situation where lots of resources means there's more opportunities to differentiate. Well, and, and even if there's less competition over like amounts of food, there may be more competition to find food. It may be more difficult to find food in the desert, but you may be less likely to compete with other organisms when you find food because they're spread out across the desert. Right. Versus the jungle where there's food everywhere and everyone's going for it all the time. <laughs> right. You know, so competition may be kind of relative into what you're competing with, the environment or the other organisms. So it, it, it comes back to what we said about everything in this episode, which is that it's very complicated. Yes. Every case is different and there's a thousand different ways that things can go. Yeah, you could probably see an example just like this that has very slow evolution and one that has very rapid evolution just by merit of like which organism or the specific kind of habitat yeah. that it happened in. But like we said, there's going to be a blog post and we'll have lots of links. So if you want to do the deep dive and look more into these topics on your own, that's a great place to start. There's some interesting stuff out there. Yeah. And like you said, we always take requests. So if there's more people want to hear about these things, let us know. You just let us know. We'll add it to the list. You can contact us in all the typical ways, email and f social media and all that good stuff. Yeah. Thanks to our requesters for the requests. Mm -hmm. Thanks to our patrons for their questions and for their support. Thanks to you for listening. We release episodes every fortnight. So check back with us in two weeks. Two weeks. Keep an ear out for the, the upcoming spookies. Yes. And announcements on... Future end of the year things coming up. It's a good time. And that'll about wrap it up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just two more episodes till 100. Whew. We're getting close. Whew. And with that, I'm going to say bye for now. Seems like the time for it. All right, then. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>